story of Upbuild began in a monastery. On our quest to understand ourselves more deeply, we recognize that it is our attachment to our egos, our identities, that gets in the way of being our true selves. This podcast will help you understand your ego. It will help you better understand your inner world, the motivations, insecurities, and emotions that affect your every action and relationship. Welcome to Upbuilding the Self. Welcome to our Upbuild Conversations. Today, we're happy to have the full team together, and we are looking at what does it mean to be self-aware? What does it mean to be self-aware? It's a thread throughout our work, self-awareness. It's one of our core principles, and it's absolutely critical as a leader to be aware of ourselves, to know what we're bringing to the table, what we're bringing into our organizations, into our systems, into our lives. And we often encounter that many people that we meet have this little expression. I have used this myself. I'm a pretty self-aware person. (laughs) I'm a pretty self-aware person. You've probably encountered that before also. What does that mean? It begs a lot of questions. How can you really be a pretty self-aware person? And we want to examine that more and perhaps push on that idea a bit. So I wanted to throw it to you guys for anything that comes to you about the idea of being self-aware and and this sense of like, yeah, I mean, I'm pretty self-aware. Thank you, Harry Prasad. If you don't mind, I'll I'll jump in first. (laughs) It brings to mind the same thing that I shared during the workshops about what my economics professor talks about, average drivers. He says how 80% of the drivers feel that they're above above average, which is a statistical impossibility. Self-awareness is something similar. I also think that the question of self-awareness brings up certain emotions of shame. The fact that I'm not self-aware makes me experience some element of shame. So I always want to, and in terms of how I project myself, I always want to know that I'm self-aware. But then deep down, I also understand subconsciously that to be self-aware means a lot of inner work that I sometimes don't have the muscles for or don't have the time for or also not being trained to do. So in the absence of all of that, and then the experience of quote-unquote shame for not being self-aware, many times there's the tendency to say, you know, I think I'm a pretty self-aware person. And how can you debate that, right? (laughs) Well, prove to me. (laughs) The times that it gets really difficult, and we have seen this even in our coaching work, is uh, when the person is not self-aware, but actually thinks that he's extremely self-aware, That is the place where you just really can get any leverage on making movements on growth. That to me uh, has been the most challenging component of the coaching is when the feedback is very substantially pointing to the fact that the person is not very self-aware, but the person basically dismisses all the feedback because this feedback has to be incorrect because I'm pretty self-aware and I know what's happening. So that's the dichotomy. 
there's kind of like a built-in mechanism to make this the case. Whereas in like something like sports, you know, it's pretty easy to see if somebody's a professional athlete that that person is way better than me in this particular area. But if you're talking about self-awareness and the conversation is even coming up, that's enough for most people. It certainly is for me as well. A lot of times that if, if I'm even broaching the topic or if I'm even getting coaching in the first place, if I've signed up for coaching or I've signed up for a self-awareness workshop, that is enough to, you know, kind of check the box. I get a gold star. I'm, I'm self-aware. And on that idea of shame, you know, how many people really, really like to say, oh my God, I totally missed that. But the thing is, when we really miss something that we feel we should have seen, it brings up a lot of vulnerability. And that vulnerability is because of the shame. So the idea of like, I don't know myself very well, that starts to get deeper, more shameful. So I have to compensate for that by being self-aware. But the question is, am I really self-aware? How do I know I'm self-aware? The notion of self-awareness is very akin to what we talk about, or at least paraphrase Thomas Merton's take on humility, that it's a self-protecting, humility is a self-protecting virtue. You can be happy about the fact that you're humble because the moment you do that, you lose the virtue itself, you lose humility. I think self-awareness and, and many virtues that, are, that run very deep have a very similar quality. Self-awareness is something very similar. As soon as we say, oh, I'm a very self-aware person, I think right at that point in time, I lose my capacity to see what I'm not aware of. <laughs> it's paradoxical. So somebody who is very deeply self-aware, or I, I would say the single trait of someone who is actually very deeply self-aware is somebody who's constantly saying, well, I'm not really aware of what I, what I can see. It's almost like somebody who is who is very deeply self-aware, is always saying, well, I'm not self-aware. And so I have to be looking harder. I think it's natural that we think we live within our thoughts and we're familiar with them. And so that breeds a sort of feeling of self-awareness. And it's also hard to walk around the world feeling like, well, I don't know anything about myself. Like, where is the confidence to navigate the world? What do I really trust then if I think I'm not self-aware? So we do need some element of knowing that, you know, I think I understand myself. Then it's a question of how far we take it. <laughs> it's a question of, does that mean that I'm exempt from not having to look at things that I need to be even actively searching for to look, to look at? And I think the world is a very good mirror. It shows us what we need to look at through our relationships primarily through relationships that are pretty close to us. We are forced to confront things that we need to look at more deeply, even when there is uh, ample justification for it. <laughs> so it's a very fine balance of trusting that you can see and then also distrusting <laughs> what you are seeing. And being able to carry both of them together, it's opposite ideas, but being able to, being comfortable with the fact that both of them simultaneously exist. The world also, it, yeah, it's, it's a good mirror for bringing us in touch with things that we're not aware of. It's also a 
way in which we feel expected to know, right? The world expects us to know what we're doing. And we feel like in order to fit into this world and to be okay and secure in the world, that I need to be aware and I need to, even if I'm not aware, I need to pretend like I am. Fake it till you make it, right? Confidence is everything. Just pump yourself up. You can do it. You don't have to be aware of everything. If you're aware of enough, you can make like you're aware of everything and you'll get on great because nobody's really aware of anything anyway. So I am pretty self-aware. I think this is what makes it so difficult for leaders often to have self-awareness is that even though they might have the psychological safety to be vulnerable and actually express when they you know, can see their blind spots and maybe not always know. Uh, they also don't necessarily get that feedback and that mirror as often as other people because there's nobody at their level. There's nobody who might feel comfortable to actually say, hey, you're, you're missing something here. You're actually not seeing the whole picture. And so, you know, it can feel quite lonely at the top sometimes. Yeah, we're afraid to ask for help and people are afraid to give us help. Also, many times the feedback that's given, it doesn't necessarily fully understand the person that we're giving feedback to. So it may come from somebody's subjective experience. This is not to invalidate that feedback. And many times the feedback, when it comes from a place that's subjective, perhaps even like charged without necessarily understanding the perspective of the leader, then the leader also feels misunderstood. And so at that point in time, it's very easy to silo oneself and say, well, nobody really fully understands me. And while there is truth to it, it can also become a zone of isolation. So what should we do if we're leaders facing that dilemma? What should we do? I mean, I think the first thing is to become aware of that dilemma. I think most of the time we're not even aware that that is the dilemma that we're facing. But then what? Let's say we can recognize, yeah, you know what? I'm not able to ask for help. I'm not able to say I feel misunderstood. I'm not able to really express the vulnerability at all. But I recognize it. Then what? One is having someone like a coach or a confidant who you can go to to be very honest and be able to share and seek perspective. We also see, uh, and this is something that I hear often, that there are CEO circles where it creates a safe space to be able to, it's almost like, well, this is a level playing field. And I think we all can share freely what we go through. Again, creating a peer support structure like that, there again, I think the culture needs to be honest sharing and not just like giving advice to other CEOs about what I do, but just being able to like honestly share what I go through can be powerful. And I think a third component here would be your executive team, uh, and many times the executive team is seen more as a team that runs with the orders of the of the CEO. But the executive team, I think, is a real, like they are confidants of the CEO. And if there is a mature executive team, and I, I, I underscore the word mature, then uh, there is a lot of protection that the CEO gets in that team from a point of view of being able to share his or her vulnerabilities and, and seek perspective. The other question that's coming up for me right now is thinking about for a leader, all of the different 
character traits that they need to work on. How important is self-awareness among all of those things? Where does it fall? Because there's almost an overwhelming number of things that they need to consider and take on. And so I'm really curious for your guys' views on, on this. Like, where does it fall in the list of things that I need to do? It's foundational. I mean, it's, it's the key and it, it unlocks the ability to work on other things. If we don't know the you are here point on the map, how are you going to get anywhere else? It's impossible. So when we're fancying we're somewhere that we're not, this is what creates the greatest disconnect amongst teams, amongst families. Like, I mean, this applies in all circumstances. The most awkward elephant in the room is when I think I'm so great at something and I'm really not, or I think I understand something and I'm actually misleading people or I'm misleading, I'm deceiving myself. So it starts with the you are here point. I mean, that is as foundational as it gets. And from there, we can see what we need to work on. We can see what it will take to work on it. And we can keep accountability with ourselves and hopefully have someone like a coach or, or other people in our lives that we can trust who hold us accountable. I mean, I'm reminded, Vipin, of an article that you had sent me years ago, which impacted me deeply and which we also have integrated into some of our work from Daniel Goleman on emotional intelligence and the title of the article uh, in the Harvard Business Review being what makes a leader. And it's not even what makes a good leader. I found this very poignant. It's what makes a leader, period. If you want to be good, then you got to really work on this, right? And the first thing, the first component, he gives five aspects or components of leadership, which all tie to emotional intelligence. They're all, they make up emotional intelligence. And so his argument is that if we want to be a leader, it means we're synonymous. That's synonymous with emotionally intelligent. And what makes up emotional intelligence? The first thing is self-awareness, the very first thing. And we always hammer that home in our work and our workshops, because there's just nothing more important as a starting point, and frankly, as an ending point. Also, to that point, it's like when an athlete is performing or expected to perform at the highest level. It's not that the athlete gets there and then says, okay, now that I'm at the highest level, I start working on certain muscles. The fact that you're aiming to actually play at the highest level requires for you to train those muscles very, very early on. So another follow-on question that's coming up for me related to this, if we take the metaphor of the map and the you are here on the map, it's a very two-dimensional, with precision, I can say, I know I'm exactly here. So when we take that metaphor to self-awareness and we think, what are the elements here that we're talking about? Because it's not, we're not in a you can't precisely point to you are here in self-awareness. So how do we even bound this concept, right? I have something that's been in my mind for, for a little while now. Uh, I don't know if this is going to help with the matter. It might make things more confusing and overwhelming, but I'll just, I'll just say it for a moment and we can see where it goes. Well, we can make it messier before we clean it up. So that's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. That's great. So, so to make it really messy, um, <laughs> I mean, before we talk about the components of self-awareness and, and how to bound that, 
we have to first think about what am I aware of? I mean, we say self-awareness that implies I'm aware of the self. Does that mean that like I'm aware of whoever I think I should be? I am my ego as we define it, who I think I should be. And I'm really aware that that's what I am. I mean, in some sense, yes, like we want to be aware because we need to be aware of the masks that we wear. But we also have to be aware that those masks are not us. So when we talk about self-awareness, we're looking to actually peel the layers of the ego and to get beyond who we think we should be, who our parents, you know, indoctrinated us to be, who our team expects us to be, who we've always dreamed of being since we were little kids, because that would be awesome. Who we actually are is something very, very, very different. So when we want to be aware of ourselves, we need to see what's getting in the way. And that is the ego. There are so many layers, so many masks. I don't think that got too messy. <laughs> okay. Good. That's, that's also the cornerstone of our work. That's, uh, we want to be who we really are, not our egos, not who we think we should be. Also, in my own experience, and going back to the earlier point about self-awareness, I also, although I have never explicitly stated growing up, and growing up in India, self-awareness was not such a big thing talked about. So we didn't really explicitly talk about it, but I felt like I was a I was a pretty self-aware person. At least I portrayed it in other ways that I, I know myself and I know other people. Until it got to a point where I had to own the fact that I have insecurities. And many times we generalize it and we say, well, I know I have insecurities. And just the fact and just the way in which we express it indicates the degree to which we are self-aware. When you know you have insecurities. It's not a small thing when you really know you have insecurities and the form that they take. It's a stark reality. The experience of that gravity and the sense of responsibility that comes with that is very different than just saying, well, I know I have a few insecurities. So to me, the single easiest point you are here, starting point, is to actually make a list of things that I'm insecure about. And how is it impacting other people? How is it impacting my decisions? How is it impacting the way I show up on a day-to-day basis? And we can walk through that list. And if we pay a little attention, we will see that it's showing up. And it's showing up very often. And that in of itself, going through that experience in of itself, can create that gravity. To me, uh, that is something that I experienced and still continue to experience. Like yesterday, I had an experience of rage. I've never seen myself as an angry person. But I had a very strong experience of rage yesterday. And it's almost, it's frightening to see that I have so much anger in me. And it just changes the course of how you carry yourself. Initially, there is, uh, there is a sense of like, wow, this is, I don't like what I see. I don't like myself. But then as you process it, you also begin to experience a, a deeper sense of humility. You know, there is a correction. <laughs> and that correction is a good correction. Because now when, when you conduct yourself, you are perhaps a little more aware that there are things within you that show up unexpectedly, that you really need to look at it. There is certain gravity that comes with it. So 
to me, the easiest starting point is really looking for your insecurities. Yeah, that's a, actually it's a very concrete way to establish that you you are here on the map. And also, what you said reminds me of um, this Wayne Dyer's quote about when you're talking about the rage, like he talks about the orange and when the orange gets squeezed, what comes out is the juice and that's what's inside. So being able to acknowledge that these emotions that I'm feeling, that's what's inside of me. So I have to look at that closely because it's so easy to point your finger. Well, that other thing outside of me caused this reaction, this feeling. And so I distance myself from it versus owning that whatever event that might have been the trigger, the reaction was mine. And that was something that I have to be more conscious of. I also think the other thing that you said about insecurity, it's funny because like finding yourself on the map and the list of insecurities, I think we use that word quite comfortably and frequently in our environment. And it's almost... It can be even, I would use the word exhilarating to discover new insecurities that we were unaware of. And maybe because it's pointing to like, it's like finding pieces of a puzzle to yourself that we had lost somewhere. But then I also think about so many times we've talked about, you know, doing workshops with organizations. And as we talk about some of the frameworks that we want to bring to help cultivate more self-awareness. If we talk too much about insecurities, I think sometimes we can get a reaction. It's almost like, well, it sounds really depressing. Let's do something more up- uplifting. <laughs> and so, you know, it's all, again, it's the eye of the beholder. It's very uplifting for us because to discover something that was you were blind to before is can be really uplifting. But we also have such conditioned relationships with the idea of insecurity that it's it's very difficult to look at it's also how are you going to create security how are you going to get the uplifting effect without looking at the blocks to it the insecurity the lack of security is what's stopping me from feeling uplifted now if i want to pretend to be uplifted or pump myself up that's another thing but when we want grounded real powerful upliftment it means it has to be resting on something solid and we don't want to be avoidant. I mean, who wants to be an avoidant leader? Who likes an avoidant leader? But we don't talk in these terms. So when we talk about, yeah, that sounds depressing. Well, we could reframe that as that may sound avoidant. Also, I think the excitement, as you put it, Vipin, the, the excitement is in the discovery. So if I'm going into a conversation like that, not necessarily wanting to discover, but wanting to feel good, then that's essentially what I, you know, what I look for is just wanting to feel good. But discovery has, and this is what Amy Vinson talks about in her book, Teaming, when she talks about a learning organization, the primary focus of a learning organization is discovery. How fast can we discover things about ourselves? And when we hit those places and we have those learnings, then naturally the response to that is becoming better. But uh, her, her whole point is if we do not have the mindset of learning and discovery, but instead have the mindset of proving, then we end up making more mistakes and we actually fail more because the mindset is one of proving. So this is, uh, even on a very personal level, when we learn to live life as a discovery, 
yes, true. There will be moments of discovery that will be unpleasant, but it's freeing when we discover. <laughs> and it also benefits other people. So go, going back to the map metaphor, we really have to know that we're not at the destination or we have to know that we have to know that we don't know what the destination is because too often we actually have the destination in mind. We have, we have labels for the destination. So for example, your anger example, if my destination is I'm not an angry person, even though all of my behavior might disprove that I'm still going to justify it. I'm still going to come up with lots of good reasons why I got angry and that it's okay. And that next time it won't happen because I'm a self-aware person. So we, we have the destination in mind and therefore it prevents that learning that you're talking about. And this goes back to being attached to an identity that we portray to the world. And uh, we, also, um, we also feel good about ourselves. And this is the amazing thing about life. There are periods of life that actually affirm a theory that we have about ourselves. I am successful. I am kind. I am righteous. And then suddenly there are periods of life that just like tear that notion down. <laughs> and we are left wondering, well, what happened? Like, what happened here? Right? So, and then we begin to recognize how the notion that I had previously about being successful so much of it actually lived on my external circumstances. Circumstances were never really testing enough. And so I could live with that notion. But when circumstances, and as, uh, as Bipin quoted Wayne Dyer, when, when you're really squeezed, <laughs> that's when the true, true test of what we carry actually shows up. And I think if we are not prepared to look, then we will resist. And when we resist, it takes even longer for us to actually discover. So the idea of developing the self-awareness muscle is the habit of taking note as soon as an identity is confronted, then looking inside and being able to go inside and see, okay, what am I not seeing here? I really like what Hari Prasad says, what am I not seeing? We're living our life with the, with, the, with the spirit of what am I not seeing? Again, going back to that discovery and learning. That is the mindset that we need to be trained for and adopt. All want to feel free, right? But if we can't talk about things and we can't, it starts with being able to look at them in ourselves, how can we be free? I mean, it's so simple. We are avoiding so much, and we know what it's like to be in the room with somebody who's avoidant, who's avoiding the issue or avoiding the quality that is causing a block in the relationship. We know this so well. Let us not be that person. Let us not be the person who causes the block in ourselves and in our relationships. Why not have a little courage to look within? and see my insecurities and be able to speak about them. Why do we need to avoid that? It's so freeing when we can look at what we're afraid of and actually be accepted and, and create an environment, a culture, where it is all right and you're accepted fairly unconditionally. Now, there are always conditions in terms of what is appropriate, but when we expand the scope of what's appropriate to include our humanity 
and our insecurities, we create so much more security and people actually overcome insecurities and they flourish and the environment becomes so inspiring and we truly feel free. It's so powerful. We experience this in our work. We experience that with each other by some grace and we experience that at times when we work with teams that are open and receptive and in our workshops that are open for anybody. The question, you know, what am I not seeing can feel a little nebulous or, or very open at least. Are there other questions that you can think of that might feel a little bit more practical either within the work environment or at home that might allow a conversation to start or at least to ask for this mirror to reflect back uh, some of the challenges that I might be having? I mean, take it as situation. What am I afraid of in this situation? What am I afraid is going to happen? What am I afraid will be seen about me is a very powerful way of directing it. To me, going back to the question about what am I not seeing, that's an invitation for the mirror to actually step in, right? It does take uh, that complete openness and then a dialogue to be able to then arrive at very precisely what am I not seeing. So what am I not seeing is a mindset that signifies a certain openness for the mirror, whoever that person may be in our lives, whether it's in the context of an intimate relationship or work environment, to be able to say, this is what I see that you're not seeing. Because we do need somebody from the outside to be able to show us that. So when one of my mentors, he talks about this podcast that he was listening to, and uh, in the beginning of the podcast, the person who was being interviewed made a comment about the geography that the, inter- the interviewer was living in. And that interviewer corrected the person being interviewed. And that person being interviewed said, thank you, thank you. I live to be corrected. I live to be corrected. And uh, my mentor was telling me that that phrase, that word, that's the set of words, I live to be corrected, really struck a chord with him. because. He said that if I learn to live life that way, it's such an invitation for me to actually become better and better and better. Now, again, I love to be corrected. If you tell that to people who are very eager to correct you, it can actually be misused. So it has to be applied with some degree of discernment. I also think that that question, when just asked, if I'm standing alone and thinking about what am I not seeing, it, it can feel very broad and overwhelming, but then taken in a context. So if you and I are co-founders and generally we each think that we are we trust our instincts and we're right about a lot of things and I see a point of divergence on a decision it's very typical for me to double down and like well here's what I am seeing here's why I think I'm right and you're doing the same and in that moment am I able to well I also really trust Michael we're working so closely together and I'm hearing him, but what am I not seeing in this specific decision that he's seeing? And even if he may not be seeing all, what I'm seeing, I question my own righteousness and my own confidence. And not to go in a place of like paralysis and self-doubt, but just to be able to check myself. And I think then then it becomes very specific. It can be about a decision to hire, to fire. It can be about a decision to 
invest in one initiative over another. And you can always keep coming back to, okay, I have clarity on my point of view, but what might I not be seeing? Also, to your point, Pippin, I, I really like what you said about like not going to that place of like intense self-doubt or complete lack of confidence. But to question my confidence, I need to have a healthy sense of to me, healthy confidence is when when I'm comfortable to question my own confidence. <laughs> One other thing that was on my mind from a little while earlier, when we were talking about discovery and the excitement of discovery, the thought that came to my mind is that sometimes that discovery can also be like a shiny new thing. So there's excitement at the beginning, <laughs> and then that excitement tails off as you think about, well, what, so now, now what, now the hard work actually begins of how do I work on that thing that I've discovered? And so there, I think part of the excitement that I experience is having that strong support network to help you process and keep moving the needle on those things. And I think this comes back to, Rasnath, what you were saying earlier about, you know, the idea of an executive team, coach, confidant, like who are those people that can help me who are in my corner, who I can be really open and vulnerable with, because it's really hard to do this on, on our own. And it's so it's overwhelming. So otherwise you'll be left with a lot of exciting discoveries and and, and no progress. We also, um, we've encountered many times and Ross and I brought this to the fore at one of our workshops where we were training people to be coaches or to do coaching at an organization and you know the response to getting feedback or, or coming in touch with something which may be helpful for me to learn or to see is yeah thanks i'm i'm aware of that and you see in that response is a lack of awareness because if i'm truly aware of this then going back to sort of the beginnings of this conversation if i'm truly aware of this there's going to be shame in that and the fact that you see it and, and you think it's important enough to share with me, whew, that makes me feel shame, 100%. And so the response of, yeah, I'm aware of that is a compensation for that shame. It's a way of dialing it down and saying, I got it under control. Thank you very much. It's like, yeah, no, no news to me. You can't surprise me. It's, it's a way of saying, you can't touch me right? And we don't even know we're doing it. This is why there's a lack of awareness in that response. If I'm actually aware, how might I respond to that? It would be different, even if it's the same words. For the sake of understanding, let's use the same words. Yeah, thank you. I am aware of that. I'm trying to work on that. It feels very different from like, yeah, thank you. I'm aware of that. I'm working on it. And that's what we see all the time. So the thing is, it's humbling. All of this self-work is humbling. And self-awareness means we become more humble because we see more. We see our egos. We see our shadows. We see our insecurities. And instead of them creating more hyped-up confidence, which we think the world expects of us and we think we should be, right? it actually grounds us in humility. It makes us so honest and so disarming 
because we can be who we are and we can be so open and not putting on a front, not putting on a mask. And we can invite everybody to be themselves and to feel so free. I and mean, it's incredible when we can do this. It requires humility. But self-awareness will bring that humility if we approach it honestly. And then we can feel free and uplifted rather than skipping all these steps in a kind of make-believe. I think this, is, this brings it back to full circle where we started talking about how when we are caught on self-aware, it brings up shame. And many times the response, like what you're talking about, Hari Prasad, I'm aware of it, is, is actually the deflection of that shame. And I think it's very helpful to become comfortable with the emotion of shame first, because every time we become self-aware, there is some element of shame that's going to come up. And as you said, we need to be humble. And quoting C.S. Lewis from The Problem of Pain, humiliation comes before humility. The journey of discovery, the excitement is about the discovery, but the process of discovery is uncomfortable. And uh, that's why self-awareness is a very courageous journey. It's not something that is glamorous, although the effects of it, when we do become self-aware, can be far-reaching and highly impactful. (laughs) The journey of self-awareness is hard work. It's walking towards the messes. It's becoming comfortable with emotions like shame and learning how to talk about them, which is why many times it's easier to not do the work but to project. Uh, because the work demands us uh, a certain realness. So uh, the urge here is to do less of the projecting and more of the actual work. Because even if we do a little bit of the actual work, the impact of it, both for our lives and for the lives of so many people around us, can be far-reaching. So when we catch ourselves saying, you know, I'm a pretty self-aware person, hopefully this gives us some more food for thought, at the very least. Thank you for listening to Upbuilding the Self. Upbuild is a leadership development company that offers workshops, coaching, and other services to help you on the path towards being your best self, free from the shackles of the ego. To learn more about our work, visit our website, upbuild.com, and sign up for our newsletter to gain access to podcasts, reflections, and upcoming events. If you enjoyed this episode, please go to iTunes to leave us a review so that others can find and benefit from the podcast. We look forward to being with you again next time.